Hi, everybody. This is Fred Penner, and you are listening to The Northern Report. Well, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, friends. Welcome to The Northern Report. I'm your host, Sean Burns, and I'm coming right at you from Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. Here on The Northern Report, I've been aiming to shine a light on emerging and existing Canadian talent, as well as some of the legends we're still lucky to have with us today. My guest on today's show is just that, a bona fide legend. Happy to welcome Mr. Fred Penner onto the podcast today, folks. Like so many kids in and around my age, I'm sure you'll remember Fred Penner's place being on CBC television here in Canada uh, Monday to Friday. And uh, Fred Penner also on TV in the United States, as I've come to find out. A lot of fond memories surrounding those afternoons in the mid to late 1980s, watching Fred Penner just be a, just being a good guy on television, incorporating the music and the friendly Manitoba attitude that he's become nationally famous for. We've got some bona fide Canadian country music legends on deck here for the podcast in the coming months, but uh, much like the season two, how we've been rolling on so far, we're uh, trying to broaden our horizons with a nice cross-section of guests. Happy that these folks are taking the time to join me on this paltry little podcast of ours. Folks, you can get yourself a subscription to the Honky Talk Times by visiting thehonkytalktimes.com. You'll find my monthly column, The Northern Report, in there, along with a whole host of other great articles, interviews, and Honky Talk Spotlight sessions. Of course, if you're in Nashville, you can pick one up at the Ernest Tubb Record Store. That's pretty cool if you ask me. Uh, We are going to be on stage, Sean Burns and Lost Country, next week. Friday, October 22nd, for the grand reopening of the Times Changed High and Lonesome Club in downtown Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. Get your tickets on Eventbrite. If you're having a hard time dialing them up online, reach out to me. We'll see what we can do for you. But get them while you can. We look forward to being there on grand reopening night. That's all I got for you right now, friends. I want to thank you for tuning in to the Northern Report. Remember to subscribe, follow, like, share the posts, whatever you got there. It really goes a long way for helping us create a little bit of a buzz here around the show. It means a lot, and I appreciate all the support so far. Let's turn things over to my chat with Fred Penner. A veteran star of stage and television screen, Fred Penner's cornerstone philosophy remains the same. Absolute trust that his work can make a difference. A gentle giant with kind eyes and an undeniable ability to make you feel good about yourself, this musical master brings 45 years of commitment, consistency, and depth to a career that skillfully blends the many genres of performing and communication. Dubbed Mr. Multimedia by Billboard magazine, his diverse repertoire includes a prolific 12 children's albums and countless energetically packed live shows for throngs of eager audiences across North America. A two-time Juno Award winner and an eight-time nominee, Penner was the first children's entertainer to headline at the Los Angeles Amphitheater. 
a four-time recipient of the Parents' Choice Award, the Los Angeles parent called Fred the Canadian Minister of Positivity. He has successfully transformed children's entertainment into a family affair, offering his broad talents to speak to the family unit and express his feelings about where the world is going and what children are learning. Like thousands and thousands of other children in and around my age, I too spent many days of my youth watching Fred Penner crawl magically out of that hollow log and into our hearts, something that he did for 12 seasons and more than 900 episodes in the hit CBC TV show, Fred Penner's Place. Always building on a common theme rooted in integrity and a belief in what he can do, Fred Penner has created a lasting impact that crosses the generations and continues to grow. In the year 2000, the Canadian Institute of Child Health honored Fred for his contribution to the well-being and safety of children. He is a humble recipient of the Order of Canada, the highest recognition given to a Canadian citizen, and the Order of Manitoba, a similar award from his home province. One of his albums, Happy Feet, was named Best Children's Album of the Year by the USA's Entertainment Weekly, and he is the first ever winner of the Prairie Music Award for Outstanding Children's Recording. Friends, it was my sincere pleasure to speak with Canadian icon Fred Penner, and I hope you'll enjoy our conversation. Where, where am I catching you? Uh, on Vancouver Island. Oh, beautiful. Yeah, my, my wife and I bought a property here a number of years ago, and, uh, and after COVID hit in March last year, I came out here and I've been settled into this part of the world ever since. Were you in Winnipeg before you moved out there still? Uh, we were on the road at that, at that point. We were doing the 40th anniversary Cat Came Back tour. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, we, we had done a batch of uh, Ontario, Ontario dates and uh, Saskatchewan and heading into Alberta, played Calgary, and then went up to uh, Edmonton. We were about to play the Winspear Theater in Edmonton uh, I think on the 13th of March or so, and then uh, and then it hit. So we all scrambled, and I came back here, and the other guys went back to Winnipeg, and that's the way it's been. I always uh, I always envisioned you as as a Winnipeg guy. Like, did you grow up here? or Did you land here oh, yeah. as you got a little older? No, no. I I was born and raised in Winnipeg. My my parents came from Winkler Winkler Morden area from the Mennonite farming community down that part of the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I'm I'm a I'm a prairie boy, uh, hail and hardy, and uh, and so this is this is a bit of a bit of a variation, but you know, as as I'm as I'm approaching um, semi-retirement, I suppose, you know, I'm uh, I'm shutting shutting some of the things down along the way, and uh, you know, touring touring is still is still very strong, but you know, over the next couple of years, it'll it'll slow down a bit, and I'll, I'll just become uh, a more sporadic kind of player, not doing the the insane kind of touring that I've been doing for forty five years. Yeah, yeah, that, that's that really is how long I've been on the road for since since the early seventies. Yeah, you're a real you're a real lifer in the entertainment game, and that's the truth. Yeah, it's pretty pretty bizarre, but that's the way it's worked. 
So when what was Winnipeg like when you were growing up? Because it's I, I grew up close to Toronto, so you always sort of got that rat race uh, feeling being, you know, even 45 minutes out of the city. And I moved to Winnipeg and it sort of sits in a gray area. It always has felt like a big, small town to me. So I was wondering what it was like back then. Oh, it was fabulous. I mean, it was a it was a it's always been um, in the history of Winnipeg is is quite something you know the, the the gateway to the west business the chicago of the north i mean it, it has has lots of beautiful history because of the river and water systems you know you know that uh winnipeg really became a hub for for canada because it was centrally located you know goods and services were coming through the uh the the the, the farming communities the manufacturing systems that were happening i mean winnipeg went absolutely through the roof it, it was the fastest growing city in north america in turn of the 19 1900s right you know so i i know i know what where winnipeg came from i know the the essence of the city and and when i was growing up in you know in the in, in the 50s it was it was quite wild you know my i i lived uh, my dad was in the army and we we lived on cordon avenue um just west of of keniston Mm-hmm. you know that area yeah and that and that was <laughs> this is this is this is going back but that <clears throat> that road that street going you know towards roblin boulevard and tuxedo that was uh that was a gravel road <laughs> really eh? you know yeah I, I remember i remember it being you know being un, unpaved and i remember you know taking hopping on my bike and going into into the woods nearby and finding old um old wagons broken down wagons in the field i mean it was it was quite wild back back then uh but it but it was a just a wonderful safe place to you know to to grow and 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 discover and you know so i i i have my my heart is deeply entrenched in in the prairie and always has been you know and and making winnipeg the the base as my career started to to grow made sense because it it was in the center of center of the country, so equidistant basically. And as as my uh, my ex wife and I were raising our four four children, you know that was uh, just a perfect perfect place to uh, to position myself. I thought of I thought of going to Toronto at one point, but uh, but then once once I got out there and you know and then realized it would have been a a whole different different trip trying to build it and it wouldn't have ultimately made any difference to my career i don't think you know because lots lots of connections were there in toronto and i and i've been there hundreds of times i'm sure over the years but that's the way life works you know Mm -hmm. there's something about it here and and people are really passionate and there's a strong sense of community and i don't think you can i mean i certainly didn't understand the power of the of the the community and the people here until i lived here for a little while and uh it's such a vibrant arts scene here and and that's sort of been been the way it's been for quite a long time am i right with the music and the art here in winnipeg is a real focal point of the of the community yeah, I, that's again historically that's where it all evolved in the early 1900s. You know, as as the city was growing, as more more people were moving in, as more industry was coming in, as the train systems were being developed, all of that, Winnipeg uh, necessarily because there's more people, the the arts 
grows out of that. So uh, so the the vaudeville scene that was strong in uh, strong in in North America or in in the states started moving moving north a bit. So the Walker Theater and the Pantages, for that matter, there those were both you know just gorgeous gorgeous theaters in the 1900s. And at the Walker, which was more of the the vaudeville stage. Uh, you've probably heard the the history that the Marx Brothers met Charlie Chaplin in the Walker Theater. I didn't know that. Oh well, there's there there's a bit of history for you. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, so that, that that kind of that kind of information you, it gives you an idea of how really vibrant the that part of the arts community was, and then all, of course all all the musicians that have grown out of out of the isolation of Winnipeg is is quite. Um, is quite incredible. I think because Winnipeg didn't have any immediate influence from any other uh, side of the country, you know, like um, in Toronto, you're you're dealing with with New York and uh, down the eastern coast, Vancouver. It's you know the whole West connection, Los Angeles, but Winnipeg, nearest city was Minneapolis. <clears throat> you know, until um, until Prince came along and uh, <laughs> made some influence there, but but Win- Winnipeg really really had the opportunity for the for the performers to to grow and develop their own style without the immediate influence, as I said, of any other parts of uh, parts of the world. So I think that's where a lot of the uniqueness came from. You weren't trying to match what somebody else was doing; you were able to just come up with your own. You know your own direction. So, like, uh, you know, the the isolation and the and the weather, you think, have a lot to do with this as well. Oh, sure. Yeah. You know, in 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 in, in the winter time, you know, you're you you're, you go into the basement. Mm-hmm. You know, you pull out the instruments and you uh, and you start jamming. You know, so you jam for a few months and then spring comes around and you uh, and you bring what you've what you've developed over over the winter, you know, to the light of day, and uh, and it it went it went crazy. There were some of the truly most talented people on the planet, you know, came came from uh, from Winnipeg. I, I, I was just listening to some some Randy Bachman and, and BTO stuff last night, and 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 jamming along with it, and they boy they they played well. I mean it was it was you know pop rock. But uh, but very very talented guys. Fred Fred Turner, who's been a pal for years. I mean, those guys just did uh, such incredible music, and you know, bringing Burton into the mix and and Lenny Bro, and you know, going back to some of the early early comedians, David Steinberg, and uh, there there's such a, a range of of musical and and comedic talent that came from Winnipeg, and and the dance world was massive you know the 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 first um contemporary dance company rachel brown's company started up in the uh, you know probably 50s 60s the Royal winnipeg ballet the and the arts the visual arts that were there because of the the range of culture that came to winnipeg from i mean every every walk of life came in and you you build your you know your uh or you, you bring along the styles of different different cultures for the uh, for the visual art and it's yeah I mean Win- Winnipeg really set set the bar very very high for uh, for for the arts in every aspect. 
And my theory was kind of always that there was such a rural influence. Like you said, your folks moved in from Winkler, Morden area or, or Southern yep. Manitoba. It's like, there's a different, there's a different sense of values. Uh, and people really, really are friendlier here, uh, than in other parts of the country for a city that's big, you know? Friendly Manitoba. It's that's true. The one on the license plate. Yeah. So what was it like for you at the uh, Penner household as a child? Was there a lot of music being played around the house on records or radio or? Yeah, m- mostly n- not, uh, not too much live. We had, uh, we had a piano. Uh, I didn't see or really touch a guitar until I was 15. Oh, wow. Um, but, but listening, listening to music and <clears throat> being involved in choirs from, from grade you know, from grade three, all the way through, through my my school years, including university, high school, I was in, I was in, in numerous um, operettas and stage productions, and uh, and and singing, be, you know, became my 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 first first love. Learning how to do that well, and then uh, th- then learning some piano, and then learning guitar when I was, you know, in my mid mid-teens but uh but at home my my parents were into uh the, the classical music um lots of orchestral stuff my my dad would would air conduct in the living room when when he put on a symphony uh and they were also into the swing music from the from the 40s the the, the benny goodman dorsey brothers you know ella fitzgerald louis armstrong that that kind of that kind of stuff so i had this wonderful range of of sound that was coming into my my ears on a on a daily basis and i and i fortunately had a very good musical ear so i could listen to those things and say how does that how does that harmony work how does that pattern work so i was developing that as i was growing up at home and you enjoyed that music you enjoyed your parents music at the time oh yeah of course yeah you know, it was it was very it was it was very sensitive a lot a lot of the Certainly, a lot of the orchestral stuff was just so full and vibrant. It it filled, it filled my my um, filled my being with 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 some of the best music that was ever written. So, what about like you know? I guess you would have been ten years old or so uh, when uh, when people like Elvis Presley and Buddy Holly start start making the scene. Does that stuff make an impact on you as a child? Uh sure. That yeah. was probably a little little bit later later than that. Uh, the yeah around that time my older brother and sister i have we had five kids in the family i have an older older brother and sister a younger younger brother and my youngest sister susie uh she was born with down syndrome and so i learned uh you know a huge amount of how music could affect her her spirit and that ultimately formed uh, in a really strong foundation for me as i moved along realizing how valuable music can be for for a human uh so yeah so certainly the buddy holly and and the big bopper and then uh and bill haley and the comets you know those early early 50s bands were were really really vibrant they they were just driving out some great great sound and um and so i i learned I learned to appreciate and sing along to all of that. And my, as, as I said, my older brother and sister were into, were into that music. So that was being played, you know, on, on daily rotation. And then once the, we got into the sixties and I'm, then I'm old enough to start, start playing some of the folk songs. And that, that scene that was, 
that was happening and uh with 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 the gordon lightfoot and and joni mitchell i saw i saw joni when she was 20 about 21 years old wow at a uh, at a at a at a, uh, a folk club out towards the university of manitoba you've you've driven to the to the u of m down pemina highway yeah oh yeah so so when when you pass bishop grandin and you make that left-hand turn down uh, Bison, whatever it is, going and over, as close to Bishop Grand, and that you can make that run. On the left-hand side, there there used to be um, a little place called the 4D, or the Fourth Dimension, um, and and it was it was a it was a it was a bit of a dive, you know, it was <laughs> a bit run down, but it had a had a great little stage. And uh, and I I go there often and see see some of the, you know the the folk performers coming through and Joni Anderson, she hadn't changed her name to Mitchell yet. Her her maiden name is Anderson, and uh, and she married Chuck Mitchell, and then changed her name to to uh, to Joni Mitchell. But I but I saw her and I was I, I was like in the front in the front of this uh, of this space and she she was like like ten feet away from me and my heart was just pounding because she was so strong and so so beautiful and vibrant so i, I i've got some uh, pretty pretty powerful winnipeg memories of of the the groups that came through that certainly influenced me is that where you cut your teeth as a performer was like playing folk clubs and that kind of stuff yeah yeah when once i uh once i learned how to play guitar as i said in 15 so i was heading into high school then and I was in a number of uh, folk groups and, and played played the coffee house circuit in that in that area. And then uh, as I got to university, you know, again more more bands and groups came came into my into my world. And you know, we we did uh, yeah most mostly the, the the folk the folk scene. And then uh, in the early after I graduated from from University of Winnipeg. Um, I started playing more professionally in in lounges and bars in uh, in Winnipeg, and that started building into some more touring into Ontario and Saskatchewan, and getting into a band with Al Simmons. Yes, I definitely wanted to learn about that. So, were you? Because I mean, it was a, a time when, and I'm fascinated by the whole thing. Uh, my father was a full time musician for his whole life, and starting in the late '70s, you know, in through mm. th- the '80s, it was it was six nighters. They're doing six nighters in taverns or bars, or there would have yep. been lounges or stuff. So, were you doing that kind of thing locally, like six nighters with bands? You bet. Wow, what kind of music were you playing? Um. We the, the 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 main band that I was in, pardon me. Um, we we were doing some some uh, some rock, semi rock stuff. Uh, the the band with Al was called Cornstalk Comedy Troupe. So we so we did uh, oh from we we played some Santana uh, comedy comedy. We we did a ten minute. Sesame Street sketch in in the bars, you know. So it it was very very playful, very engaging with the audience, certainly. And it uh, it was um, it, it was a very open uh, kind of kind of playing. It wasn't it wasn't just getting to a groove and you know and and jam for uh, for for a couple of hours. It was it was much more connected with the audience and participation was 
was encouraged along the way. So that that was the main the main trip. And of course, coming from the folk scene, that was the essence of of the folk music was participation. So so building that into anything I was doing was uh, was critical. Do you remember any of the rooms you guys were frequenting in those days? In oh yeah. The, well, the the first the first bar that I that I played at, you know, my my first paying gig was at the Balmoral Hotel on the corner of of Balmoral and uh, was it Memorial, mm-hmm. and uh, it was and the bar the lounge was called the Can Can Lounge. <laughs> so Fred Penner at the Can Can Lounge for three nights: Thursday, Friday, Saturday, twenty five bucks a night. Uh, so that that was a that was an opening opening bid, and then when when the band got rolling, our our favorite spots were the city center, down on Carlton, uh, the the Voyager Inn, uh, way out on Pemina Highway, not, or, or on Portage Avenue. Not sure if that's still there. I don't think so. And uh, and 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 the Voyager uh, was out where Long and McQuaid is, on Pemina, you know Pemina South. Uh, so in that vicinity, there was a, there was a bar called the Voyager, and uh, and and we would we would play that and and a number of in the U of M spots or the, or the University of Winnipeg, you know. So there were a, a batch of those, and then we would tour from Toronto to uh, Alberta, where the were the provinces that we would uh, do, and we did some television stuff along the way. Uh, a couple of a couple of series guest spots on things. You said you went to university. Like, were you on track for some kind of civilian employment, or did you always have your sights set on being a performer? No, I I never considered professionally being a performer. My uh, uh, I I had uh, I'd been doing music, uh, you know, the 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 vocal stuff in choirs, as I said, from my elementary years. <clears throat> but um, nobody along the way had ever, you know, recognized any talent and said, hey, "You should, you should pursue this full time." That was never, uh, never a concept. So when it finally came around in the, excuse me, early, early morning frog here, uh, I so I, I basically went to university. I was never a great student, but I went to university to uh, fulfill my father's dream of uh, of 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 having a college degree because he, he was never able to do that, you know, with, with his world and, and a war and a family and all that. So I, uh, I was the doting son and I went to university and, and, um, did my, my first year of arts and, uh, and then realized that I, I was not going to be a, a life, a lifelong student. Uh, so what, what kind of, or what subject, what discipline could I get a BA in, with the option of actually getting a job? Uh, you know, I, I had taken psychology and English and philosophy and and economics in my in my first year, and our, and economics was the only the only discipline that you could actually get a job after. You know, with the Canadian government, the Central Mortgage and Housing Corporation, and and I was. I, I, I wrote my civil service exams, and uh, and I was apparently suited for for doing that sort of work, whatever that meant. Uh, so I got my BA in economics and uh, and was on the on the list to to move in that direction. 
And uh, at at that time, fortunately or unfortunately, my my sister Susie with Down syndrome, she she died, and my father died a year later. So I was so I was faced with you know the ultimate mortality check, and um, and did some soul searching and realized that music was really the only thing that I that I felt any bliss or connection with. So I left I left economics far behind and then I started playing well the bars, the Can Can Lounge <laughs> at the Balmoral Hotel and uh and it just kept building and growing from there and people liked what they heard, which gave me more confidence to you know, to pursue uh to pursue more musical directions and that led from from this to that to this to that and ultimately a TV series and you know where it went. So after the band with Al, is this this would have been mid mid seventies? Yep. Yeah. We, uh, we we started seventy three to nineteen seventy seven. We did a four four year run with uh, with Cornstalk, playing all the time, like six nighters, three, four, six nighters, whatever. Yeah, for for the most part, you know, we 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 do uh, like a three three week tour mm-hmm. somewhere, and then we get back home, and you know, and. Uh, uh, and gather our our senses, and uh, and then head out on the road again. So we we were playing, yeah, we were playing a lot. You weren't maintaining other uh, day jobs at the time. You're just playing music, just music. Yep. And then the your first record uh, comes in 1979. The cat came back is 1979. Yep, that was the that was the year the uh, the, the first cat came back came out. The the original recording. And then, uh, and then, I uh, made a deal with with Rafi's company in Toronto to uh, to take over the Cat Came Back and you know put it through through his his machine because he he had some really good contacts for distribution. So I worked I worked with uh, uh, with his company for five years until 1985, when uh, we parted ways and I started my TV world. Um, I I think I heard you talk about it before, but if you don't mind telling me the story of uh of how that first record got made, it was there was uh someone you met at a show or something that took interest in in the music. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd been doing uh, a number of performances with my uh, with my ex wife in Winnipeg, who's a modern dancer, and and she had uh, we started up a children's dance theater company called Sundance. And uh, and we would um, develop shows, original productions, where where she would choreograph and I would write songs for you know for the audience to participate in, and uh, and we would invite kids up on stage and you know just take them through a, a theatrical journey. And after uh, one of these shows, a uh, a local uh, doctor and his wife and a couple of kids they approached me and asked if I had a record. And, I said no. I, you know, I had I had not even considered that at that point. And they they said, well, we would love to uh, finance that for you. How much would it cost? I said, I have no idea. <laughs> so they they essentially gave me a, a blank check. And uh, eight thousand dollars later, you know, we had the the cat came back had had been created, and um, uh, went into it was called Wayne Finucane Studios over on uh, on Sargent 
street. It's now, uh, it became uh, channels. It changed to channels at one point, and it's still it's still there. I forget the name that it, it is now, but uh, gr great little theater or uh, studio. We went in there, and uh, and I I brought in a batch of original songs and a bunch of cover tunes that I really wanted to do, and including the cat came back, and and uh, and away away we went. We uh, we created that that album, and um, apparently was quite a historic turn of events and then is that when you got on Rafi's radar because it's a couple years later you start putting the records out on uh, the troubadour label there of his yeah yeah we were uh let's see i hadn't i hadn't recorded the album yet and uh so it, i guess it was maybe maybe spring of 79 because we we did it in the fall of 79 so so spring maybe early summer uh Rafi was playing a concert at the Fort Gary Hotel for local teachers, and uh, and so I um, I contact or I I went to check him out because I'd I'd heard about him mm -hmm. and uh, and we we met and and uh, and he says well, so what are you into and I said well we're just in the process of of uh, doing my first record and uh, and he said fabulous when when you're done the record. He says, "Send us a copy, and uh, maybe we can do some business together." Because he was looking at expanding his roster, and uh, so that's what I did. We finished the album, sent him a copy. They liked what they heard, and uh, you know, we we made some packaging changes and and some uh, some minimal um, recording changes, and that uh, that led to the the. Cat Came Back album that uh, most people know now. So in the years between that record coming out and the television show that you're looking at probably five, six years, I guess, um, you've transitioned out of playing, you know, for uh, for six-nighters or whatever, adults in bars, and now you're doing a bit more of the family interactive show. Were you touring that whole time uh, in between? Yep. Yeah? Yeah, from, uh, from 79, as soon as, as soon as the album came out, I was I was on the road, the uh, you know playing the I mean it was perfect perfect timing for for that industry, for the family industry to grow because the post-war generation the boomers that I am one of were starting to have families, and the and the boomers really uh, wanted quality music for for their kids because there there really wasn't anything specifically for families at that point there there was lots of folk music which you know I, all of the performers who who pursued that direction you know um, myself Sharon Lawson Bram Rafi we, we all came from the folk scene right uh, so we so we we started putting putting our our focus onto uh, you know onto children's music and family industry and and I started writing writing more songs in in that uh, in that direction but uh the because there was such a demand for for uh, for quality music for for the boomers uh festivals started cropping up across the country you know the candle arts uh candle arts council the man of arts council every province had had a pretty vibrant um arts councils that were really looking to to support the industries and uh, and the children's industry was was certainly at the top of that. So all these wonderful 
international festivals started, you know, cropping up. Uh, the first one was in Vancouver, the the Vancouver International Children's Festival in the early 80s. And, uh, and I started playing that and I've done it, you know, a dozen times at least over the years. And, uh, and then right across the country in, in Calgary, Saskatoon, Prince Albert, Winnipeg. Um, n- not so much in the East, oddly enough, uh, but, but there were, you know, this whole wave of festivals that really set up, uh, you know, very strong um, position in the industry. And it moved from festivals to soft seat theaters, you know, playing the, um, well, the, the the Burton Cummings now or the or the Playhouse Theater in Winnipeg, uh, all these major like thousand plus theaters across the country were uh, were were wide open, and the audiences just poured in. There was one, uh, there was a theater in Windsor, Ontario, called the Cleary Theater back uh, back in the in the uh, in the eighties, and uh, one weekend. We played five shows for about two thousand people a show. <laughs> wow! You know, it was yeah. it was one of those. You know, so just as an indication of how truly vibrant the industry was, and uh, and you know, so that that's the for for that decade for the eighties and about half of the nineties, that's the way it was uh, was going. It was just. You know, take take a deep breath because this is this is quite a ride. Yeah, you're there for the yeah. beginning of this infrastructure starting to happen. Because I was going to say, like, you know, even pre-internet for a, a traveling band, if you're playing, you know, six nights a week, you you can get a phone book and you can call the bar or whatever in the town. But like, how are you know how are how are these family shows being booked and being marketed and stuff? You know, it's and you're there for it. Uh, yeah. The the industry really started sort of in the mid in the mid seventies, you know, and and Rafi, uh, you know, certainly came on came on the scene. He came from his his folk roots, and his uh, his mother in law was uh, was an elementary uh, school teacher, and uh, and felt that there wasn't enough music for for her her students. So she she asked Rafi because Rafi was on a you know a path playing the 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 riverboat or folk clubs across the country and and as we all were and uh and she said well why don't you do an album for kids and uh that that evolved into singable songs for the very young (laughs) that's such a great title oh it's great and then singable songs too for the very young so it it and that went went through the roof i mean he's he's a very good musician and he brought in some uh some fine fine people to support him and and those albums went went viral, you know, instantly. And uh, so he was ready to, as I said, expand. And and Sharon Lawson Bram came on about the same time. And then I was, I was probably two, two years or so, you know, later in the later in the process. So it was still, you know, ground groundbreaking territory for us to be playing. So how did the television show come about? Uh, that was a fluke. That was not expected. You know, I had no anticipation of doing uh, of doing that trip. But after after playing the first five years of the eighties, uh, the the amount of touring that I was doing was uh, was insane. And uh, but but the reputation was was building, and 
unbeknownst to me, the CBC folks were, you know, were going to the festivals. They were seeing what the performers were doing. They were watching my pro- progress, and uh, and they were on the brink of finding a replacement for the Friendly Giant, uh, a series you know that was very popular on CBC Kids television in in that in that era. But they were looking to change that up. And uh, and they they found me and said I I think that that would be a a good new direction. So uh, it was uh, it was a cold call uh, from Dodie Robb, who was the head of children's television in in Toronto for CBC, and she called me up and introduced herself and told me the story and asked if I wanted to do a series. <coughs> and I said. Uh, sure. What do you what do you what are you actually saying to me? And says, Well, what what would you like to do if you had if you had your druthers? What would you rather do in this? You know, what you most like to do if you if you could create any kind of a children's series? You know, in in your in your brain. And uh, and so I thought about that. Thought, well, what what direction would I like to go if this is going to happen? And, uh, and and because I had grown up on the prairie and, you know, natural landscape and not, not wanting a series to, to be just knocking a door and come on in, I wanted it to have a natural feel. So the idea of, of developing Fred Penner's place and, you know, my concept of the hollow log was there. And, uh, and then a number of writers came in and we just started looking at how this how this could develop. And uh, you know the the creative teams in CBC were were very excited to sink their teeth into that, both in Winnipeg and Vancouver. So we had duplicate sets oh. in uh, in both cities. And so I would you know over the over the course of a year, you know I, I do uh, a couple of three week runs in uh, in Winnipeg, a couple of three week runs in in Vancouver, and then I would tour in between. So you guys would film for a few weeks at a time here, and then you would go out and do some dates, and then you would go to Vancouver and film for a few weeks kind of thing? Yep, as as more shows were being developed. Because, they, you know, they uh, there, there, it was a lot of, a lot of writing yeah. uh, was happening. So, so there, there were a dozen or more writers across the country who were submitting scripts. So we would do... <coughs> Excuse me. We would do a we would do a run, and then um, yeah, then then we'd we'd re- regroup and and uh, and and look at look at new script direction and and then I I would I would write songs for many of the new scripts that were coming up, and it just uh, it, the, the, we just established a you know a, a process over that time, and uh, and just delighted in. In the, I, I mean, that was that was some of the best fun I've ever had. The most creative work that I've I've done because because I was writing to task. It was uh, it was a wonderful opportunity to just let my my vulnerable creativity, you know, come to the front and and just all the music that was in my brain and songs that I had grown up with and patterns and and all the rest of it. So my musical ability was put to the test. At that point, and I wrote hundreds of songs for, 
you know, for the series over those years. Well, it sounds like a pretty uh, demanding schedule that, that you were working with. And I guess if you don't have time to sit and overthink the material, you got to learn to trust yourself and, and get it out pretty quickly. Sure. No, the, the, the trust, the trust factor was high and I've, and I've always been uh, really good on that line for whatever, whatever reason I, I do, you know, believe in my, in my abilities and uh, and I am a very spontaneous uh, kind of person, so I, you know, put me in a in a, a position, give me that kind of opportunity. Uh, I I would fortunately always rise rise to the occasion, and uh, and and some of the songs were you know were were pretty pretty good tunes that have stood the test of time, and I've I've re-recorded them on some of my uh, subsequent albums. Uh, it was uh, it was a very very powerful creative time for me. Obviously, I mean, uh, did did you feel pressure like uh, in all aspects of life working at a schedule that's so demanding like that? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No. They, oh, yeah. It was it was high. I mean, th- those are the those were the years for doing that. You know, in 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 human evolution, those those are your productive years from from 30 to 50 that's when your career you know supposedly is is running and and you're and you're you're building you know you're building your financial situation and then you and you're raising your family and all of that so but those those times were um were such a blink you know we planes trains and automobiles right Mm -hmm. it was uh it was constant travel and uh you know, and, and, and hotels and, and car rentals and, you know, and then finally, finally getting, getting to the venue, getting up on a stage and, uh, and doing what I'd, you know, learned how to do over, over a lifetime and performing and interacting with the audience. It was, uh, it was very, very intense. Um, and it, and it carried me as, as I said, for like 45 years. Your celebrity is such that you're recognizable to people of all ages. You know, when you're on TV every day, the kids are recognizing you, and so are the parents. Like, how was life for you in the '80s and the '90s when you were, you know, on t- television regularly like that? Uh, well, it, it it certainly was was good for for priming the audience attendance for the venues we're playing across the country. You know, they. You know, CBC's Fred Penner is coming to, to a you know to a theater near you, and uh, and many of the shows were sold to Nick Jr. Nickelodeon Jr. in the states, and for five no uh, three years, in the late '80s, early '90s, it aired to uh, 55 million homes in the in the U.S. through through Nickelodeon, you know, so that opened up some uh, some pretty serious uh, US touring along the way I was the first uh, children's entertainer to play at the Universal Amphitheater in Los Angeles oh wow you know in May of 1990 and uh, actually May, May the 12th was proclaimed Fred Fred Penner Day in Los Angeles <laughs> right by on. the by, by the man you know, so there there were some silly things like that that yeah. happened but uh, but we 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 made a, a a pretty substantial mark in the in the U.S. over over those years, and uh, and then you know 
coming into the 90s, things things just started to to slow down a bit because the industry was being well, the the, the whole entertainment world was changing. And, uh, and and so the the gig started to slow down. The TV series ended in '97. You know, I was starting to you know contemplate maybe going back to economics because you know I wasn't sure where things were going to go now that the series was over, that the record sales were 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 you know was still maintaining, but it was a uh, it was a point of transition, and that's when I uh, started playing the university and, and bar circuit, basically taking those kids are following those kids who grew up with me on, you know, in in the touring and Fred Penner's place and going to where they were at the universities. And that, and that opened up a, a beautiful series of uh, concerts from, from Victoria to Halifax. And, oh, it was just a brilliant move to do that. And, you know, so it, it, uh, it opened up that next wave of those kids growing into adult adulthood and, and into parenthood, having their own kids. And, uh, and then that opened up another, you know, wave of, uh, of performances in the soft seaters across the country. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm right in that age bracket. I'm born in 83. Like I, I grew up okay. with you, with you on TV every day. And, uh, mm. and you know, when you come out and did the, you know, did the pub tour and the, and the bars and stuff like, that must have been such a trip. But were you prepared for the amount of people that I'm sure you know wanted to uh, have a beer with you or go outside with you on the break? Like, did you realize that that was going to be what it was like when you were getting into that? I, I I never really had any expectations about any of this. You know, I I had no I had no long range plan to you know after five years to do an album after after another five years to do a TV series, you know, that was never part of my, my concept or direction. So when, you know, when that generation, when I was playing the bars and, and and these young people would, would approach me with, with tears in their eyes, you know, uh, with, with, with open arms, you know, can I have a hug Fred Penner? Uh, You know, it, it, uh, it was, it was very gratifying to know that they felt that strongly about what, uh, what our connection had been. Um, but, but as far as anticipating that, I, I did not. I mean, you said that you'd uh, done a lot of choir singing and stuff, but I mean, you, you're, you're able to connect with us watching you on television in such a strong fashion, just so calm and comfortable. Uh, did, did you do theater? Were you a theater guy when you were growing up? Yes. Yeah. Back in, I mean, through, through, uh, through high school, I, I was, you know, I did character roles in Gilbert and Sullivan operettas and then, uh, similar kinds of musical comedy things in, uh, um, in university. And then I, I was a regular in the rainbow stage, uh, musicals in the late seventies. And in, in between that, you know, when, when the, the band in when Cornstalk with Al Simmons, when that was on hiatus, I would I'd be doing plays in Winnipeg through uh, through a couple of of different theater organizations, and uh, yeah, so I, I I I did a lot of uh, a serious drama, a, a lot of lighter lighter hearted comedic kinds of things, but uh, but certainly learning about the value of performing. 
from a theatrical point of view. So when when I when I'm on stage now, I bring that along with me. I you know I, I bring the the interaction with with the uh, with the audience, the awareness. One of the basic rules of performing is when you're on stage, the person at the back of the theater should feel as connected as the person uh, person in the front. Mm-hmm. You know, so so physically when i'm 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 my eyes are scanning my eyes are looking at the front making eye contact with 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 kids with parents with grandparents you know and and sharing a, a thought if there's a if there's a child who who's um who's a little upset who's starting to cry in the midst of a show sometimes i'll, I'll you know i'll stop uh i'll stop a performance and i'll and i'll focus in on that child and i'll I will um, define them because so often, you know, in philosophically understanding how the audience dynamic works, I would see the child, I would find out the child's name, and then I would call out to the child, Sean, hi, Sean, you see me up here? And, and I would wave, you know, to that specific child because so often, and here's the philosophy part, is when young children come to a, a a space you know with with a thousand people it can be very overwhelming and 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 i think the the, the child because they listen to me on you know recordings or seeing my program which is a very personal opportunity for them you know it's just me and the child together all of a sudden and 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 the child i think starts to feel that this this Fred Penner guy is my personal entertainment unit. And here I am, here I'm on stage, here he is on stage and there's all these other people like, what are you doing here? So the overwhelming feeling hits the child and they, they, they start to cry or that's, that's, that's my, that's my <laughs> assumption. <laughs> Not that. So, so when, what if, if in fact the child does feel overwhelmed, stopping the program for a moment, identifying the child, giving them a space, you know, and recognizing what they are feeling. And then, uh, then, then that allows me to go back into the performance with, with inclusion to them. So then, then in the, in the course of the show, I, I will refer to that child again. You know, I'll, I, if I'm doing um, like ABCs and twinkle, twinkle, you know, I'll say, hey, Sean, I've got a song for you to sing, okay? You, you know, it, you can help me. You specifically can help me with this song. And, and and all of a sudden, it's, oh, I you know, I've got, you know, Fred's talking to me. I am here. You know, that. so that kind of awareness of the, of, of the value of performing and coming from my theatrical background was was just I think gave me a different style obviously of of approaching an audience than uh, than than the other performers. Yeah, it's a really powerful tool to to still make it feel so intimate, even though you're you know watching on TV or in a room of a thousand people. And I'm wondering like. You know, surely everybody has a shitty day and, you know, you're under these uh, travel demands or, you know, production demands. Like, did you have any tricks to, you know, to to uh, to to sort of forget about a bad day or a a rough time and then just do your job, you know, to get into that character? Uh, 
no real tricks. Uh, you know, see, yeah, certainly the 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 touring, you know, would take its take its toll, and 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 there were times where the distances between one place and another did not really work out with my body. Yeah, and uh, and and I had, I think, in in the course of my my forty five years, I had to cancel maybe three gigs. You know, I I I I had a very solid constitution, and uh, and I was able to, you know, to get on the stage because the, the the stage is where where I could relax. You know, everything else was, everything else was stress. You know, to to uh, you know to to make sure your car's got gas in it so you don't run out before the next gig. You know, it, it was details, details, just a constant flood. Of, uh, of of details and no, no matter how much support I had with that from you know from managers or agents the rest of that I still had to deal with it in the you know in 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 truth so it was uh it it was challenging on the road but but getting on stage uh as I said was was relaxing for me because I didn't have to think about any of the other stuff all I had to do and still, all I have to do when I'm on stage is present my material, the songs that I want to share with you, to the best of my ability. And every audience is different. You know, wh- whether I've done the, the, the cat came back, you know, 100, 1,000, 10,000 times, I will always give it the same, the same energy, the same degree of, of focus, because that's what the audience deserves. They they have spent they've spent some money they've 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 made the the commitment to pack the kids into the car to come to a venue to do this so so it is my responsibility as as a professional performer to give them the very best that I possibly can you know and that's and that's always been the that if that's a trick well perhaps that's that connects but it's always been that. For me is is my my responsibility and taking myself seriously from that point of view was critical thank you very much uh mr penner it's a great pleasure to speak with you uh you know i uh i grew up with you on the on the tv every single day my mother was so excited when i told her i was speaking to you on the phone today <laughs> oh that's sweet well I'll say yeah. hi to your mom for <laughs> i appreciate you taking the time and i uh, look forward to coming to see you when you're in winnipeg next Well, friends, I hope that you've enjoyed my chat with Fred Penner. Huge thanks to Mr. Penner for taking the time to share parts of his great story with us. You can find some of Fred's music wherever you're streaming for a nominal monthly fee, or check him out at fredpenner.com. And know that there is a lot of old Fred Penner's Place clips available on YouTube. Follow along with the Northern Report Spotify playlist to hear music from the folks that I've interviewed here on the podcast and those covered in my column in the Hockey Talk Times, along with a whole host of other great Canadian artists. Our logo was created by Boots Graham of Boots and the Hoots, and music on the show today, courtesy of Sean Burns and Lost Country, The Divorcees, and Skinny Dick. From local legends to regional stars to the cream of the Canadian crop. You're going to find it all here on the Northern Report. Thanks for tuning in, folks. We'll chat later.
Hey. Hey, buddy, you got something good for me? Uh, no, but I'd like to check in on myself. <laughs>